Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. BAMI founded Inspire to Soar with the mission to give everyone impacted by cancer the tools to live fulfilling lives. BAMI has been a patient and loved one of someone with cancer. She infuses every client with positivity and helps to restore their confidence so they can achieve audacious goals. BAMI, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. And I just want to give her a shout out. We had a lot of technical difficulties <laughs> prior to the record um, and two different platforms, but we're here now. And I am already so intrigued. So you've been a patient, you've been a caregiver. I'm going to let you decide where to start um, with the cancer journey. You can start with yours or with your loved ones. Okay, the beginning of my cancer journey was when my late mother was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 42 in Nigeria. So it was within the context of um, an abusive home because my my late father was very abusive and there was no support or anything like that. And then at the age of 46, she passed on. And then years down the line, my big sister, she was diagnosed with breast cancer again at the age of 40. And then she passed away at the age of 46 in 2017. And then I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 37. Oh, my goodness. Your mom, your sister, and you? Yes. Oh, my goodness. My own journey into diagnosis was an upside down one. So I'll quickly explain. After my sister was diagnosed and I spoke to my GP, my then GP advised me to do the to undergo the prophylactic bilateral mastectomy so that's a risk reducing mastectomy with immediate reconstruction after a couple of years because up until that point i was checking myself i had i'd had three minor breast surgeries two for fibroadenoma and one for precancer cells about a year 18 months before diagnosis so i already thought i was home free because I was checking myself and everything. And the surgery was meant to be risk reducing, okay? So my plastic surgeon sent the tissues for testing as a matter of course, and shock of shocks, I was diagnosed. They found cancer that didn't show up on the mammogram. So that was how I was diagnosed in March, 2014. So you were diagnosed when you underwent a double mastectomy to prevent cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that is unusual. Oh, yeah, so you wake up from the surgery and do you hear those words? You have cancer? No. no, the thing was the surgery was done and I was sent home because of course the tissues were sent for testing. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And then when I got when I got the phone call a few weeks later to say come for my results, I thought it was a formality. So I even told the breast scanners, give it to me over the phone. We've done this. I'm home free. She said, no, you have to come in and see a surgeon and everything like that. In, uh, even up until that point, I was still thinking, they will say it was precancer cells, we did good, we cleared it out. So you can imagine 
when a friend of mine took me to the appointment because I was still recovering from the surgery um, reconstruction because they used tissue from my belly. So it was a big operation, 12 and a half hours. So, so, I, so when my friend took me there and she asked me if she could come into the room with, I'm like, of course, because I wasn't expecting anything. So you can imagine the bombshell was just dropped. I'm like, oh my goodness. That was the beginning of my new normal with cancer in a way that I never expected for myself. Did you, you didn't, never had any fear given your mom and your sister's history? As far as I was concerned, I was always checking myself. I was proactive. Did they do any genetic testing? They did, but none of us, none of us have any of the recognized genes. Interesting. It makes you wonder if there's just some genes that they don't know yet, right? Yeah. Genes that I, I believe that there are a lot of genes that they still don't know yet. So your cancer journey begins. When is that? You already had the double mastectomy. (laughs) So what are the next steps? So basically, they um, they decided to go into my lymph nodes to make sure to make sure it hadn't spread. So I had the lymph, some of the lymph nodes removed, and as a result, I had I have lymphedema on my left arm and all that stuff. But thankfully, it hadn't spread. Now my breast surgeon now offered me an option. She said, "Oh, you're young, go for chemotherapy, blah blah blah," and. This And this was a decision I made that I wouldn't advise anybody to because for me, it was just very personal. I said no to chemotherapy because I'm like, look, all I was thinking about was the impact of chemotherapy and that unless it can be proven that chemotherapy will be of net benefit to me, Mm -hmm. I didn't see the reason why I should go through it. So I said, look, go back to your multidisciplinary meetings and find out unless somebody can tell me that it will actually be of benefit, then I'm not doing it. I was even prepared to go through radiotherapy if they said yes, but so they now had all of the meetings and then the chief oncologist said that it wouldn't be of net benefit to me at that time to have chemotherapy. And ironically, 18 months after that, a paper now came out because my cancer was caught early. So it was invasive DCIS, which is the first stage, yeah. So, but even though it was invasive, it hadn't spread. And that's the thing. If it had spread, of course, the discussion would have been a different one. Right. But it hadn't spread. And what year was this, just to give us some context? 2014. 2014. And can you explain to people, because I don't think everyone knows the terminology, what you mean by net benefit to you? Okay, what I meant was whether it would actually improve my health and improve my quality of life. And almost like not guarantee per se but make give me the assurance that there wouldn't be any recurrence or whatever because of course in my family history recurrence is is a thing so and I'd also seen the impact of chemotherapy not just on my sister but on friends and everything like that and I'm like what's it going to do for me if it's going to if it's going to benefit me that's fine but here's the thing that decision it's not some that's decision choice i made i would never advise anybody else to do, to do it because number 1 it's such a personal thing number 2 it's such a weighty thing as well it's a weighty decision to make oh yeah i oh yeah we're not giving medical advice by any means um well one did, did the cancer come back? And then two, let's dive a little bit more into your mother and sister, but did the cancer come back? No, 
I'm still on medication though, because of my family history, I'm on medication for 10 years. Hormone yes. therapy? Yes. Okay. But the other things I did though, which, because even though I didn't do chemotherapy, I took more drastic action surgically because basically I was put on tamoxifen, which gave me migraines for 12 months. So I had to come off tamoxifen. It didn't do me any good. And then I was then put on letrozole, but because I was premenopausal at the time, I was also having Zoladex injections and all of that stuff because my cancer, my, the, the breast cancer was 100% um, estrogen ER positive. So it's the estrogen one. So the, um, the oncologist now said, okay, be, given how my age at the time, so after, I think I was about uh, 39 when, this, this, when we had this discussion that I need to make, they need to take my ovaries out so that at least to cut the supply of the estrogen and all of that mm. stuff. Okay. But then when I started, I started doing my research and everything like that. And then I spoke to my old GP and everything. And I thought, okay, you know what? There is this very, very slight link between the, the feminine cancers, you know, the endometrial and all of that stuff and everything. And I asked my GP, I said, look, you know what? I think let's cut, let's remove all of this. And so I don't have to talk about it anymore. So I had, I opted for a full master, a full hysterectomy just before I turned 40. Okay. So for me, that was, for me, I just felt like that was me doing everything proactive that I could do to cut any, any risk of it coming in, coming back in any of those areas. And when I had the hysterectomy, I was relieved. You were. Yes. Wow. It's interesting. You are the third woman today, just so happens today. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to you who's had breast cancer. All mm -hmm. three of you have had the estrogen positive. Oh. All three of you have made different choices. Mm -hmm. All three of you live in different countries. So it's, it's really, it's, it's fascinating to me um, because we do get to make our own choices. Mm -hmm. And can you tell everyone at this point, um, where were you living and, and getting your health care? I was living and I'm still living in Wales in the United Kingdom. And can you tell us, um, let's start with your mom, if you don't mind, mm -hmm. a little bit more about her diagnosis. Um, you were quite young, correct, when she was diagnosed? Yeah, was yeah. And what was that like for you, seeing her go through that? I mean, you were a teenager. Yeah, it was horrible. It was horrible. It was frightening. It, it just, you know, like when it feels like the foundation of your world is shaken, because circumstances in our home were already difficult because of my father's abuse. But my mother was the one who kind of like shielded, shielded us as much as possible. And she was someone I saw as, a very, she was a very strong woman and everything like that. And to see her not being able to do anything because she, by the time she was diagnosed, the cancer had spread, it'd gone into her lymph nodes. And of course, we're talking 1990 in Nigeria, there wasn't, because she even had to travel like three out, nearly four hours away to the hospital and all of that stuff. And her treatment was just badly managed. That's the only word to use. But I didn't know the details until I got older and I started doing the research when I returned to the UK. Because I was born in the UK and then went to Nigeria with my parents and then came back. So, and within the, and now within the cultural context as well. In a culture where you don't speak of these things, it's si there's silence. 
there's secrecy, there's shame, there's a taboo of that. It just makes things so very difficult for myself and my, my younger siblings. Why the shame and secrecy? Because I understand that the shame associated with lung cancer, you know, people just assume, well, you smoke cigarettes, you behave badly. Same thing with liver cancer. People just assume, well, then you must drink a lot of alcohol. But, but, why, but why the shame with breast cancer um, and the secrecy? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? To understand that, you have to understand the culture itself. Number one, it's a patriarchal culture, number one. Number two, the whole thing about breasts is about a woman's femininity. And of course, if that's impacted and everything like that, number one, if there are all sorts of things about what did you do wrong? It must be your fault and all of that stuff. And that it's something shameful because it's to do with your breasts and everything. And then at the heart of the culture, you don't talk about these things. The same way we don't talk about mental health. We don't talk because it's like, it's seen as something to, it's like, don't, don't yeah, more or less like don't air your data lining in in public more or less it, because that's the way it is seen things are shifting a bit now with my generation but there's still a long way to go how old were you when your sister was diagnosed this is so 2011 i was i should know this i was 34 because she's six years older so she was 40 i was 34 yeah. Now, was she living in Nigeria or was she in the no, UK? She was in the UK. She, she was living like over a hundred miles, over a hundred miles from me. But Tell me a again, little bit about her story. The, but again, unfortunately, she was diagnosed late as well because she went to her GP complaining that she had lumps and all of that. So because this was shortly after my younger niece was born. Okay. And she went to the GP and the GP dismissed her concerns. So of course she was relieved, but she didn't, I didn't know about it until wait until after everything. But you know, like when you go to a GP and you say, Oh, I'm concerned about this, and the GP says, Oh, don't worry about it. And of course, because you want to believe that nothing is wrong, you just live it. So she now went, by the time she went back a whole year later, it was a different story. It was stage three, aggressive, and in her lymph nodes, you know. So so it was just, it, it just became a tough journey. And it was firefighting all the way. But she was one tough cookie, honestly. She really was. Your mother died from breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And your sister as well? Mm -hmm. Yes. How has that impacted you? The thing is like there are there are holes in my heart, there are spaces in my heart that nothing can fill. And I say that grief is the unwanted permanent lodger you carry that you have. You just learn to live with this unwanted permanent lodger. It doesn't mean you don't live well, but it's still there. The pain is still there because. November last year, for example, my sister would have turned 50. We had plans because the two of us, we had plans. We had plans as entrepreneurs, wanted to take over the world and all of that stuff. And we sit on the phone and talk for like five or six hours. <laughs> you know, Love it. So for a whole year after she passed, I will pick up the phone. I want to tell her something. 
So there was a day when I had a CT scan after I had my surgery because they wanted to investigate some pain. I had a CT scan and there was a liquid that they told me to drink. And for some reason, that liquid was just hell. So I got in there and literally I projectile vomited over the machine. I cringed. I was so mortified. <laughs> I kept apologizing over the radiographer and all of that stuff. So they, so they had to shut the thing down, clean the place. For <laughs> Sorry, yeah. yeah, but the thing is, like, when I came out, the first person I called was my sister. Oh. <laughs> because right. who else will you call and tell something that embarrassed you like that? You know, so to for a whole year, I will pick up the phone like, Oh, yes. And then I then remember that she's gone. So it's a pain that never goes away. You just learn to live with it. There's a a wonderful quote. um, And you may or may not know my story about losing my sister. um, And I won't go into it right now. But it the quote goes something like this. Sisters, children leave. So do husbands and lovers. But sisters are the only ones with you from birth till death. That is so true. So, so, so true. So true. It's special to have a sister, right? It, it, it really, it really is. And a big sister who, who looks out for you and everything like that, and who allows you, because I'm the bossiest one, even though I'm the bossier one, even though I'm the bossier one. <laughs> but when anything, anything, she's the first person I want to talk to. I'm like, guess what happened? And and then whenever somebody upset me or whatever like that, she'd be like, if I get my hands on them. I remember when I was pregnant and I had, I was having issues with my skin and the doctors were not taking me seriously. Oh, my big sister went with me and oh my goodness, she turned the place upside down within 15 minutes. I was given a bed. <laughs> within 15 minutes, I was given a bed. I'm like, she, when, we were, when she was taking me, she said, listen, when we get there, keep quiet, okay? Let me do the talking because these people need to listen. Oh my goodness. Within 15 minutes, I go in bed in one of the very busy East London hospitals. <laughs> okay, I love your sister. What's her name? Titi. Titi. Um, yeah. I'm the bigger sister, 14-year um, age gap. Wow. I raised my sister. I was her guardian um, until she died from cancer as a teenager. And, um, and someone called me once an overprotective mama bear. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> oh, yes, my big sister was. Oh, as in the kind of things that, because I remember about when I was about 20, I was going to college at the time. And I was staying in a house at the time. And I said, oh, I'm going to college. And she went, look at your hair. Come on, you look like something the cat dragged in. Come back here. She sat me down, got the curlers out, did tongued my hair, and then and then it's like, now you're ready to go out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Titi. Oh, I love her. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> I don't get to ask this very often. How is your experience different as the daughter and sister of a cancer patient versus? being a patient yourself as a daughter because of the circumstances i had i felt helpless Mm. because i i wished i could take my mother's pain away and everything like that i felt helpless i felt i couldn't do anything 
with my sister. I was angry with this rogue call because I call cancer the rogue. I was so angry that you, this rogue, how dare you come and everything like that. So, um, but at the same time, I also had to respect my, be mindful that my, of course, Titi will talk and everything like that. But Titi is not the kind, she wasn't the kind of person who will talk to strangers the way I would and everything like that. So I had to, so being mindful of that and being sensitive to what her needs were, especially in the final week when, when they said there was no, the treatments were no longer working, literally. So, but as now, as a patient, now I bring all of my badass, <laughs> my badass take charge thing, I bring it in because for me, and this is one of the things I tell my clients, taking ownership, that when cancer, that at the end of the day, cancer is something that happens to you, yes. But don't allow cancer to make you a victim. Don't, you're not a passive recipient. I respect doctors, I respect medics, but any doctor, all my doctors know me. I say, they always joke that, look, I'll go with my handwritten questions and you better have the answers for me. If you don't have the answers, then find somebody who has the answers. Ah, and, it, yes. and the thing, it's like, if I'm telling you I want something, don't tell me that you can, can do it. No chance. If I want something, as long as, as far as I'm concerned, as long as it's not unreasonable or whatever like that, you will give it to me. So I am the take charge one. I'm, the, I will, I'm a take charge patient, even till now. You're because, an advocate for your own health. Yes, but beyond that as well, because I've seen the impact of, so it, there are a couple of things. I've seen the damage that secrecy does. I've seen the damage that not speaking up does. So, and that's why I'm a patient advocate. I speak, I speak and I'm breaking all of these barriers, all of these um maybe like these cultural things, I don't talk, trust me, I will talk about it. And also trying, doing my best to educate um, do, to medical people and all of that, so that look, when you're dealing with patients from ethnic minority backgrounds, these are some of the things you need to address. So I believe that number one, I take ownership for myself. Number two, because I have a, because I have a loud voice and I know how to use it, I will use it to make things better for everybody. Yeah, I agree with you. It's like, you, you have to speak up. Yeah, because the thing is like, especially with respect to cancer, especially, because there's a shock of it already. Right. And then all of these medics, they come in there, of course, well, even if they smile at you, they come in their serious quotes and all of that stuff and everything like they're the, like they're the gods and goddesses or whatever. <laughs> somehow yes you are the expert in med in your field yes yes but you're not the expert on my lived experience as a patient that's right so there are times when some of the things you recommend i'll be like okay well how about we do it this way does it work as long as we both get in the same place then win-win for everybody but Let's have a discussion. Don't tell me that, oh, you're going to do, 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 do. And then I just got to sit there like, like a moped and listen to what you've got to say. Like, no. <laughs> do doctors run when they see you coming? <laughs> <laughs> do 
Well, <laughs> put it this way. Um, I'm an, I just tell them, I said, look, you know I'm your favorite patient because no day is ever boring with you. No no clinic is ever boring with me. No, I, but it is true. Look, my plastic... Oh, I system, believe it's true. <laughs> then he had me for three years. And you know what? The man was amazing because... I mean, the first consultation I went to with him or whatever like that, I was asking him about his track record. I asked him about the complications. I said, how many of those complications have you had? How many years have you been doing it? And he was like, I promise you, I'm not using you for tango practice. <laughs> nice. Nice. So the thing is like, so one, I think there, there, were, there might have been a couple of nurses when I was in the woods or whatever like that who were like, Oh my goodness, who is she now? But I just, but the thing is like, it's about how you do it. I don't go all aggressive or anything like that. Number one, I smile a lot because there's always, I've always got a joke in my head or something like that, you know, <laughs> when you see me. <laughs> and I, I know how to make myself laugh all the time. So when you see me, unless you've riled me, because there was a surgeon who did, and I, and I, and I told him, Never again will you will you upset me like this. So I never saw him in clinic again. But it's but he's the only exception. Everybody else is me because I'll smile at them, I'd ask about them, and the thing is, like because they could see that I was genuinely interested in them as people and that I respected them as human beings. Because again, I always say this: every human being wants to be heard, wants to be understood. Oh yeah, I agree. Yeah. We don't have to, we don't have to see we don't have to agree on everything but heard understood that kind yeah. of thing so I'll, I'll I'll smile at them I'm telling you now even when I'm telling people by because when I went to go and get my sleeve for my lymphedema whatever like that guess what they had all these beige horrible colors whatever like that and they said oh that's what you're gonna wear I said listen I said that's not gonna do my street cred any good I said, so you better get with the program. I said, look at me. You're giving beige. Who where, where will I wear that to? I said, no, no, sorry. I said, don't you do black? Oh, they said they didn't. I said, but you better start looking. Now I said, oh, we're going to have to order from out of the country. I said, fine. How many weeks will I have to wait? No problem. So when I went back together, I said, can you, and I'll put the black one. I said, can you see now? Black goes with everything. I said, can you imagine? I'm wearing a nice red outfit and I'm pull out this beige arm come on no <laughs> well since you brought it up let's let's talk about the side effect of lymphedema and, and just for people who don't know explain what lymphedema is okay so lymphedema is when they've taken either some or all of your lymph nodes and then as a result you get fl um, fluid buildup and it aches sometimes and it's a nuisance a lot of the time but again it's one of those things that you live with whatever so to reduce the because basically it's lymphatic fluid that that's actually meant to go go somewhere else so they give you the sleeve and the whole point is that the sleeve helps to redirect the fluid to where it needs to go but the the thing is like the the sleeve is tight I bet. it doesn't really go with any outfit because it's not meant to right <laughs> it's not fashion <laughs> <laughs> yeah so and some and if you're because i'm i'm, I'm menopausal 
So I get hot. So sometimes it's really hot and itchy, that kind of thing. But it's it does it does the job that it's meant to do. Okay. You know, I'm glad you shared because I've never heard of anyone, I was gonna say met, but no, I've never heard of anyone getting lymphedema in their arm. I've heard in the legs, you know, all uh -huh. the time. You hear about the legs, but I haven't heard about the arm. Um, mm -hmm. so I appreciate you sharing. What was your worst moment in all of this? And I'll let you choose whether it was your own journey or your sister's or your mother's. What was your worst moment? My worst moment will have to be when my sister died. Because the thing is, like, when you lose a parent as a child, well, well I was 17 or whatever like that, there was a lot of stuff built up to that and everything like that. And over the years, I got used to not having my mom around and everything. But my sister was like, she was the one person I thought we made plants grow all together. We made plants for her 50th. We were going to have, we we're going to go on a Caribbean cruise, you know. So when you've made plants like that and everything, I was really, in actual fact, I was scared that I was going to lose her. So that was my biggest fear. So when it happened or whatever like that, I just, for a while, I wondered what's next now. You know, and and ends the reason why I had therapy. Therapy was a saving grace for me because, because in my family and amongst my friends as well, I'm the one that everybody talks to. I'm the oh, one that everybody fix to fix stuff or to have the so when you are that kind of person amongst your family and everything like that, you need a place where you can be where you can actually talk about your own pain, your own sorrow without offending or hurting anybody or without having to watch what you're saying so for me losing my sister was definitely the worst moment yeah people who are listening can't see but I'm just tearing up hearing you say that because I I know how that feels yeah. and um yeah it's it's and I and I'm so glad you found therapy and um and I actually did too um, for a period of time so and, and I'm glad you're talking about it what was your best moment actually this when I finished writing this book, my first book. So I tell people, I said, you can call me the queen of thriving new normal because I started using new normal in the context of trauma before it became popular. But the thing was, it was, it was my sister, Titi. She believed in me so much. She paid for my publishing. She paid for me to get the book published. Oh so I God. finished the first draft. The first draft. I finished it on the 31st of December, 2016. And I was in a rush to do that because I wanted to be able to tell her that, look, your faith in me was not misplaced. So I told her, and then she passed away 26 days later. Oh, my goodness. So, I, so when that happened, the first thing I thought was, oh, my days. What am I going to do and everything? But I had, again, I had a group of people who supported me. I had a tribe from my publishers and basically they supported me and all of that stuff. So exactly eight months after TT passed, this book was published. Oh, that's wonderful. Me, that was just like, I felt, and the book is dedicated to her. You're very unusual because you had experience not only one time, but two times with two different family members with the same kind of cancer. Mm -hmm. But even knowing all that, hmm. what is the one thing you wish you had personally known at the beginning of your cancer journey? Well, I suppose the fact, the, the thing is like to know that it's living with 
cancer is a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. So because I'm the kind of person who wants to get everything done like yesterday. <laughs> As you can imagine, I'm, not, I'm still learning patience. Like I tell people, I said, patience is still work, serious work in progress. So being kind to myself that, so if being able to tell myself that, look, listen, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Take your time, be kind to yourself. Don't be too hard on yourself because that's, that's what I'll tell that was what I wished I'd known. And that's what I would tell anyone who's at the start of that journey. Even, even caregivers, because it applies to everybody. Be kind to yourself. Oh, I love that. And if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare where you live in the UK, what would it be and why? I would, <laughs> I would, <laughs> GPs, our general practitioners, I will get a megaphone in their ears, right? And tell them that, listen, when younger people come to clinic, to the, to the surgery and report symptoms, don't dismiss them as being too young. Get them this testing that they need because it's just, it's one of those things that literally I want to, because ever so often I'll read in the papers a young woman in her 30s who's gone to the GP and the GP is like, oh, don't worry, don't worry. And as a result, they're left with metastatic breast cancer and they're dying within a year, within a couple of years. So that I will put a megaphone in GP's ears and say, listen, because when you think about it, I understand the way um, the way a lot of research I mean, cancer is or whatever. They'll tell you that, for example, with breast cancer, 80% of breast cancer diagnosis is between the ages of 50 and 70. But here's the thing, human, behind those figures, they're, num, they're, they're human beings. Out, that, means those, that means outside of that 80%, you've got younger women. Don't just dismiss them, listen to them, get them the test that they need. And not just, because for me, number one, it saves lives, number two, it saves the NHS money because it's better if we treat someone at early, because for example, my treatment, my cancer treatment is much cheaper than somebody who has metastatic breast cancer, than someone who has metastatic liver cancer, whatever kind of cancer, just listen to them. Don't just say, oh, you're young. Don't worry about it. Oh, amen. Hallelujah. Oh my goodness. I, and I just want to add that, like I told you, I was, you're the third woman I've spoken to today, um, breast cancer, uh, estrogen positive, all of you were under 50, even maybe under 45. So you were all on the younger end of the spectrum. Yeah. You were diagnosed. Hmm. And, and I do know a few people who hmm. died from breast cancer and they were very young. Yeah. yeah. All right. Are you ready for the Thriver Rapid Fire questions? Uh, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Just that fun. Um, here we go. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beach boys. What is one word that best describes you? Vibrant. I see that for sure. Before you die, what's the last song you want to hear? See, I was looking at this and I'm thinking, yeah, it will have, to, it will be something classical. So Handel's Water Music, yeah. Oh, beautiful. 
and last meal you want to eat? Jollof rice and fried plantain <laughs> and chicken. <laughs> like anything bad for you, right? Like that's what I would, anything that I'm not supposed to eat that's yummy, yeah. Uh, my dad, by the way, would say KFC. So he's right there with you. Um, last person you want to see? My daughter. And the last words you will speak? Live well. You only, you, life is not a dress rehearsal. L make every moment count. Live well. And do not, don't let circumstances crush you because circumstances will come and go, live well. Every single moment is a gift. Embrace, stretch out your hands and embrace the gift of every day and live well. Hmm. You, you come from a place of such gratitude, you know, yeah. you do. And aside from Cancer U, what is one resource you recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I would like um, for you to talk a little bit about what you do and where people can find your books and all that good stuff. Okay. So first things, the first place to start will be read my book, Navigating Your New Normal, a roadmap for life fulfillment after trauma. So the book is in four parts, three parts memoir. So you will see the way I describe my journey with the rogue called cancer. And then the final part is a seven step framework that gives you like a practical roadmap, like SatNav for your new normal journey. So navigating your new normal, it's available on Amazon. Now, the book is just one book, but beyond that, I've created a, um, a coaching program and it's three months to change your life after cancer. So basically, it's, it's, it's a six-module journey We're using the word thrive. So there's take ownership, harness resilience, reclaim confidence, ignite hope, visualize joy, and embrace life. So it's a mix of online content and one-on-one -on -one coaching with me. And literally, you will be equipped to pursue your most audacious goals. It doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. It doesn't matter what the prognosis is. It doesn't matter what has been happened to you. Every single moment you're breathing, you can live well. And for me, I believe that survival after cancer is a bus stop, not your destination. Oh, goodness. I love the way you speak. And how, if people want to know more about your coaching program, how can they get in touch with you? What's the best way? Okay. The best way is to go on my website, inspiretosoul.co.uk. So that's inspiretosoul.co.uk. And then I'm on Facebook. You find, find Inspire to Soul on Facebook. And you can also find me on Twitter at Inspire to Soul 2. And then I'm on LinkedIn as well as my name, of course. But Facebook will probably be easier because so you might not remember my name, but you remember Inspire to Soul. I want to thank you so much for sharing your story today and your mother's story and Titi's story. And I hope when this whole COVID mess is over and we get back to some sort of new normal, yeah. I really hope that you go on that cruise. Oh, yes, definitely. You will? Def oh, yes, definitely. I, because it's one of the things I've been thinking about that, yes, I definitely will go on it and have a flower and remember her. Oh, Bammy, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been a blast. And I, and I really love what you're doing with Cancer University. Honestly, I really do. Um, I'm 
because the thing is like it's the kind of thing I wish someone like my mother had and even maybe my sister as well so it's such an amazing thing you're doing and I've started reading your book with because I started reading your book and in reading your book I feel like I know Ad Adrienne is your sister I feel oh, like yeah. I feel like I know the two of you I can just imagine because because of the closeness the two of you had and because of the closeness myself and Titi had, I can just, I could picture everything. So, <laughs> so I, I haven't finished, but I will finish, but it's an amazing book and kudos to you. Thank you. Now she's, you make me cry. <laughs> Thank well, you so much. I don't want my mascara to run now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a lovely day. Enjoy the rest of your day. Well, it's evening for me, but the rest of your day, right? Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories. <laughs>